Hey, y'all. Welcome back to the RV Texas Y'all podcast. I'm Stacy, And I'm Tom, and we're RV Texas Y'all. We are native Texans and full-time RVers who are all about exploring the great state of Texas and beyond one campground at a time. We're on a mission to experience life, not just live it, and we want to bring you along for the fun. Welcome to episode two. (laughs) This week, we're going to share some tips for buying an RV, even during a pandemic. Our Texas tidbit this week is going to be on one of our favorite subjects, the birth of the Texas State Parks. And Tom is going to introduce a new segment this week. We're calling it the ABCs of RVing, and he's going to talk about the difference between 30 and 50 amps. So sit back, relax, and join us as we RV Texas, y'all. In this week's Texas Tidbit, let's talk about something near and dear to our hearts, the birth of the Texas State Park System. The first mention we've found of the state of Texas buying public land was the Alamo Church, which was purchased by the state in 1883, followed by the rest of that mission's property in 1905. In 1907, Governor Thomas Campbell named the San Jacinto Battleground as a state park in response to requests from the Daughters of the Republic of Texas who were focused on preserving historic landmarks. Future governors designated other battlefields and other sites important to the Republic of Texas, and in 1919, these historic sites, including the Alamo Long Barracks, Refurio Public Square, Washington on the Brazos, Goliad, and the San Jacinto, Gonzalez, and Fannin battlefields were placed under the management of the Texas State Board of Control. So these historic sites are officially considered the first Texas state parks. But what about the natural parks where we all love to camp, hike, and watch wildlife? Well, in 1921, Pat Neff was the governor of Texas. His mother, Isabella Mother Neff, passed away shortly after moving into the governor's mansion with him. Isabella had been known for years in her community for opening up parts of the Neff land near Waco to the public for picnics and outdoor recreation. When she passed away in 1921, Mother Neff left six acres of her land to the people for future enjoyment. Inspired by his mother's generosity, Governor Pat Neff donated another 200 acres along with a neighbor to establish Texas's first non-historical state park. As Pat Neff had traveled across Texas during his gubernatorial campaign, he had realized the lack of public lands within the state and decided that he wanted to to develop a park system where people, quote, might go and forget the anxiety, strife, and vexation of life's daily grind, unquote. Governor Neff established the Texas State Parks Board, and along with board members including David Culp, traveled over 8,000 miles in one year looking for land donations. They succeeded in getting donations of 52 tracts of land, but no funding. 
Still believing in the idea of the Texas State Parks, Pat Neff built the first park building on his donated land using his own money. David Culp paid many of the expenses of the park board for a decade. As the 1920s rolled on, automobiles gained popularity and then came the road trips. Folks were flooding to the U.S. national parks and overcrowding of these parks was becoming a big problem. In an effort to spread the travelers out, the federal government began encouraging states to develop their own park systems. And then came the Great Depression. With large numbers of young men and World War I veterans out of work, President Franklin Roosevelt launched the Civilian Conservation Corps, or CCC, in 1933. We'll talk more about the CCC in a future episode, but for now let's just say that the men of the CCC were critical to the development of our state and national parks. Within days of the creation of the Civilian Conservation Corps, Texas Governor Miriam Ma Ferguson, oh yeah, the governor of Texas in 1933, was a woman. Governor Ferguson, former Governor Pat Neff, Parks Board Leader David Culp, and Franklin Roosevelt's Vice President John Nance Garner of Uvalde, Texas, were instrumental in securing 26 CCC projects in Texas. Fifteen of those projects would create state parks. But the funding issue faced by our Parks Board had not improved in the 10 years since its creation. When the CCC officials arrived in Texas, they discovered that the State Parks Board had no office, no employees, and a whopping budget of $375 a year. Unimpressed, the CCC chose to work with the new Texas Relief Commission on the 26 Texas projects instead of with the Parks Board. And even though many of their priority projects were being included, Park Board members David Culp and Pat Neff complained to the CCC officials that only the Parks Board had the authority to administer federal funds for parks in Texas. If you remember last week's Texas tidbit where we talked about early Texas and federal public land discussions, well, yeah, here's another example. The CCC's response, well, they'd be happy to work with the Parks Board if the legislature would commit at least $22,500 for a year's worth of staff, equipment, and office space. Otherwise, the CCC would pull out of Texas altogether. So in other words, put up or shut up, Texas Parks Board. Faced now with losing the CCC projects, David Culp went to the newspapers to drum up support for emergency appropriation of funds, and Governor Ma Ferguson committed $25,000 to fund the Parks Board for one year. She went on to become the first Texas governor to include annual funding for the state parks in the state budget. And when Culp passed away in 1936, Pat Neff estimated that the two of them had driven more than 20,000 miles together in support of the Texas state parks. So with funding now secured, the CCC continued their work to establish the beginning of our amazing Texas state parks. And the first non-historical state parks in Texas opened to the public during the 1930s. They were Abilene, Bonham, Caddo Lake, Blanco, Lake Corpus Christi, Paladero Canyon, Goose Island, Meridian, Big Spring, Palmetto, Bastrop, Cleburne, Dangerfield, Davis Mountains, Lake Brownwood, Longhorn Cavern, and yes, indeed, the mother of them all, Mother Neff State Park.
Welcome to our new series. We're calling it the ABCs of RVing. This week, A is for amps. We're going to talk about the difference between 30 and 50 amps. Uh, well, that's pretty easy, isn't it? 50 minus 30 is 20 amps. <laughs> that's what we thought before we took the training course. And it's not quite that easy. Let me explain. On a 30 amp unit, you, you have uh, three prongs coming out of your plug. And those three prongs, there's a ground, there's a neutral, and there's one hot. hot. Since it's a 30 amp fuse, that one hot has 30 amps of power on it. On a 50 amp unit, you have four prongs coming out of your power cord. And it has the ground, the neutral, but it has two hots on it. So you have four prongs, two hots. Each one of those hots are 50 amps coming from the 50 amp breaker. Thus, that's 100 amps of power. So that's an additional 70 amps of power. Now, you know, I don't know about you, but if I have the chance to have an extra 70 amps of power versus 30 amps, and I know that there's a good chance I'm going to not blow fuses and stuff as often, I, I think I might opt for the, for the 50 amp myself. But so when you're shopping and you're out there looking, you know now if you have two comparable units and one's a 50 amp unit, one's a 30 amp unit, you realize... You know, your wife might be able to use that hair dryer or that curling iron at the same time the air conditioning goes on and, and while you're doing toast for breakfast. So it might be a good idea to get the 50 amp versus the 30 amp. But, you know, if you have a 50 amp unit too, another thing that people do ask is, what happens if I go into a state park and they only have 30 amp electric? Can I still plug in? The answer is yes. You've got to have a pigtail. And a pigtail is a converter that will take it from the 30 amp. And it's it's a plug that you plug into the 30 amp. And on the other side, you can plug your 50 amp cord into it. Now, you're not going to have access to 100 amps like you normally do. You're only going to have 30 amps. Which you can run one AC off that. And you can still run your TV and a few other things. But you will have to be mindful of running too many things. And if the wife's going to use that curling iron, you might want to make sure the AC's not on and probably not doing toast either. And, and also that pigtail works in reverse. Let's say you have a 30 amp uh, unit and there's a pigtail that goes the other way. That if, if a, the breaker blew on the 30 amp out there, but it has 50 amp also on the pole. Well, you could plug into 50 amps. And then the other side is your 30-amp plug, and you're going to operate just like you normally do. You know, so if you go to a place that has 50 amps, you're still going to be okay and not 30 amp. Maybe the 30-amp is not working, but if the 50-amp is and you got a pigtail, you're going to be okay, and your camping experience is going to be just fine. So, again, the difference 70 amps.
So let's talk about tips for buying an RV, even during a pandemic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, RV buying tips has been one of the things we get asked about more than anything else over the years. And there are some similarities this year, and there are definitely some things that are different. Yeah, for sure. We know that inventories out there are not, uh, they're very low, and not just on new units. It's also on used units out there. You know, it's been a very interesting process. You know, since the pandemic started, obviously manufacturers all had to shut down for a while, and then a lot of them worked on minimal staff coming back. And so they're behind on their production in a lot of cases. But then on the other side, you had a lot more consumers that were latching on to the RV lifestyle. They couldn't cruise. They couldn't fly. Maybe they weren't comfortable in hotels. And so they saw RVing now as a new way to travel. And welcome to them. If you're one of those folks, we're glad to have you in the RVing community. Well, absolutely. And you know what? It is a natural way to socially distance. I mean, the state parks and everything you go out to... You're not on top of your neighbors. I mean, it can be a very safe way to get out there and get your family out there to have uh, a good family vacation. Create some memories. Create some memories. But, you know, you want to try to make a good, educated decision if you're going to buy that RV. And it's a little tougher maybe right now to find what you might be looking for because... Dealer inventories are really low. You know, not only the manufacturers had to pull back, but also more people were buying. Used units have been flying uh, off also, you know. So you kind of have to be a little more creative, a little more patient maybe. Do more research. And, you know, research is something that we have always promoted to folks that are looking to buy RVs. Yeah, that's for sure. And there's a lot of great resources out there on the Internet and stuff. So, you just got to go out there. If you know that what type of unit you're looking for, just do searches. Go on YouTube. See if there's any YouTube videos. Um, because unfortunately, another thing with the, a, a downer for the with the pandemic has been RV shows. Yeah, I, I mean, mean, RV shows traditionally have been a fantastic source of information for folks who are looking to buy an RV. Yeah. And, and they it, just, most of them are getting canceled. I mean, yes, yeah, some of the major ones, the real big ones are still, uh, they're still happening, but it's still, uh, like here in Texas, most of the RV shows are being canceled right now. So you don't get to get in there and see, you know, so many different RVs at one time. It's so. a little tougher to make apples to apples comparisons. Um, but you know, you still, like Tom said, you've got the online listings, manufacturers, websites can be a great source of detailed information. Uh, YouTube videos, like he said, love, love, love those. We found this RV that we currently have, uh, on a YouTube video. It was a used unit. Um, and we drove to Indianapolis to pick it up. I mean, we, when we found it. It, it didn't happen to be right across the street or a few miles away. <laughs> Unfortunately, it had to be over a 1,000 miles away. And But you know what? It was worth it. It was worth the drive. So, you know, you will probably or possibly have to expand your search in terms of how far you're willing to go to get that new RV. And that's true. And, you know, but that's okay because... 
it's important that you find what's going to work for you. You know, whether it's a new unit or a used unit, the unit that we're sitting in, our RV that we've had now for three years, uh, it was used. It had 5,000 miles on it when we bought it, and it's been fantastic for us. Oh, yeah, that's for sure. And Stacy kind of alluded to it, but when the pandemic first started last year in 2020, the manufacturers, they all shut down. They right. had to shut their facilities down, and many of them for several months. So, and you add to that that, yeah, people found out that maybe the only way they were going to take a family vacation or whatever is to get an RV and go. So, RVs were selling like crazy. Yes. they The RV industry had a record sales year in the middle of a pandemic. But they did not have a record year of producing RVs. So if you're looking right now, if you're in the market, this might be a little more challenging to find what you're looking for. So we don't want you to get frustrated with it. You just got to keep your nose in it. Do your research, 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 research. Talk to other owners. Participate in forum, online forums, Facebook groups, wherever you can get your information from. And then don't feel like you're in a hurry, but... When you are ready to buy and you find one that you like that checks your boxes or the majority of your boxes and you're really interested, you got to be prepared to act right now. Yeah, you do. So that, that again, comes back to research. You want to know approximately what's a good deal. You know, find out what you're really looking for. As we tell people, you buy the RV for using for the purpose uh, that you're mainly going to use it for. How many people are normally going to sleep in it? I mean, is it just going to be you and your wife, or do you have uh, three kids, so there's going to be the five of you? So obviously, if you have five, you need to sleep five. If, if it's the like an older couple that you're buying your, <clears throat> excuse me, your first RV, and it's really for two, but you may have an occasional grandchild with you, buy the RV basically built for to sleep too. And it might, you know, usually the dinette folds down or whatever. It's not normally big sleeping quarters, but it could be good enough for a grandbaby or two. Um, and you may even be able to throw a sleeping bag on the floor. A lot know? of people do that. Yeah, so you don't necessarily have to go out there and buy a bunkhouse model to have bunk beds for the grandkids unless that's unless you see yourself traveling with the grandkids all the time. And so, you know, that's a good segue. Let's talk about some of our overall tips for things people should look at and consider when they're buying an RV. Size is a big one for us. Oh, yeah, that's for sure. I mean, if you get too big, there's a lot of places you're not going to be able to go. I mean, and a lot of people, when they start looking, they think, Oh gosh, I've got to have uh, this sixty-inch TV, and I need I need uh, a king-size bed, and they're thinking about all these. I mean, I need a huge shower, and but remember, for the most part, when people buy an RV, this is a, a weekend getaway. This is you're going out in the in wilderness, and you're you're having fun. You're taking the RV to have fun on the outside most of the time, not the inside. Right, and you know if you're somebody that likes to stay. In nice RV resorts with amenities, size is not so much a big issue because most uh, RV resorts, uh, at least the modern ones, are going to be able to accommodate 
any size RV. If you're someone who likes to stay more in state parks, national parks, um, you know, more of the natural settings, size might be a more important consideration for you because some of those older parks are not going to be able to accommodate bigger rigs. You may have to find yourself staying in an RV park outside of that park and then driving in, which is still an option, but you just need to know that going into it. Yeah, and also when we when we say size, what you got to consider too is you have, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, with a big pull behind or a fifth wheel <clears throat> is a bigger truck. Mm. Your weight becomes an issue with that truck. So when you when you're looking at you know, 35 or 40 feet fifth wheel, you're going to need a substantial truck to pull that. So do you have a, a 350 or or 3500 or for a dually? And that's a good point. When you're looking at the price of the RV, if it's a towable RV, a, a travel trailer or a fifth wheel, you have to consider if you don't already have a truck that's rated to pull that with some wiggle room, in addition to yes. whatever the weight of that trailer is, you don't want to bring right up to your capacity for your towing. But if you don't already have something appropriate for that, you got to figure in the price of what's it going to cost you to get the appropriate truck to pull the RV that you're looking at. That's for sure. And that's where some people don't understand there's not as big a difference between like a Class C motorized RV and a like a fifth wheel, because a fifth wheel, you got to consider the truck also. Mm -hmm. So many times a big fifth wheel setup costs quite a bit more than a Class C RV would cost. And so that's another thing to look at. You know, and we've kind of mentioned it, you know, when we're talking about weights that the truck can pull, you got to consider the weight of the RV no matter what type it is, you know. Uh, with a Class A or, you know, even some of your towable RVs in the different states, Texas included, once you get above a certain weight, which is 26,600 pounds in Texas, uh, you need, you're supposed to have a special license. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's if you're one pound over 26,000 pounds, you're supposed to have a special driver's license. So that's something to consider. Um you know, if you're going full-time, maybe you want to look at something a little bigger, and that's not as much of a problem for you because this is going to be your house. But if it's just a weekend getaway, how much space do you really need to be comfortable? So that's just something to take into consideration also is how are you going to be using your RV, and how are you going to travel? Now, you, you definitely, you, on every RV, there's going to be a weight sticker, And it's going to tell you how much that RV weighs dry, meaning no water, no propane, you know, that type of thing. Just the bones of the RV as it exists today. And it should also tell you, or you should be able to figure out very easily, the capacity that you can carry as far as cargo goes. Yeah, and that's important because if if you look at that and there's only like 700 pounds of cargo carrying capacity that's everything i mean that's your barbecue grills that's your anything you're going to carry in that rv now granted and and when we had a tow behind a, a travel trailer we carried a bunch of stuff at the back of the truck too so that doesn't really count against uh your carrying capacity on on your uh, rv but 
Oftentimes, too, we carried it in the RV. So if you're carrying it in the RV, it counts. If you have water in the freshwater tank, that's going to count. You're, I mean, so. And if you're in a motorhome, the people count, the dogs count, the cat right. counts. You know, anything that is inside that RV when it's traveling counts toward its carrying capacity. Yeah, make sure you have as big a spread on that and as much cargo carrying capacity as you can so you don't have to worry about going overweight. Because being overweight is one of the biggest uh, safety factors. You know, if you're you're overweight, the likelihood of, of blowing a tire goes way up. Absolutely. And so one of the first things, this is not a buying tip, but just a little throw in here is after you get your RV and you've got it loaded the way that it would normally travel, we absolutely highly recommend getting it weighed. And you can do that basic way at a truck stop at a cat scale. It's very simple to do. Um, And you can weigh if it's a towable RV, you know, weigh your truck and the RV. If If you're a motorhome, Weigh your motorhome. If you're towing a car behind that, you can weigh that all at the same time and know exactly how your weights are per axle. But also through escapees and some other organizations, you can get a more specific uh, weighing that will tell you not only axles, but also left to right how your weight is distributed. Yeah, and when Stacy says the CAT scale, on the CAT scale, it is... Your, your truck itself can be on a totally, it's literally on a totally different scale than the uh, tow behind is. Yes. So, so you are getting a separate weight for each, and you actually have a, uh, a total weight for your truck, too. So you can make sure that your truck, that your driving is not carrying too much as well. Super important. Cannot stress enough for safety the importance of knowing and paying attention to your weights. I mean, we've all seen an RV on the side of the road with a blowout, blown out tire. I mean, it happens all the time, but you can minimize it. And minimizing it by keeping, making sure your tires are in good working order um, and also making sure you're, you have the right air pressure in your tires and that it's not too heavy. You know, so, but... That's kind of getting off of our getting subject Getting off here. of our subject. Let's go back to some other things to consider uh, when you're buying an RV. Yeah. Um, how about simple things like spending time in that RV, laying on the bed, for example. You know, if you're a big person, uh, a smaller bed, you know, some of the RVs, it might be a, you know, RV queen, as they call it, which means it's a little bit shorter in length. So if you're a little bit of a taller person, that may not be comfortable for you. That's true, and, you know, you may want a king-size bed. And and that's real popular in the industry today is that everybody seems to want kings. We don't. We're the opposite. We actually want queens. But um, and well, we a, like a regular queen as opposed to an RV queen. Right, right. <laughs> and, and, again, the, another thing that's very important is the bathroom. You know, people don't think about it, but sit on the toilet. Before you do it, and I'm not meaning go to the bathroom. I mean, just <laughs> sit on it, and because some toilets in some RVs, they're like up on a pedestal thing, and your feet dangle, and i got to tell you, for me, that is seriously uncomfortable. Absolutely. You, you know? know, I mean, little things like that. Stand in the shower. You know, close the shower door and, and see if you're going to really have enough room to comfortably shower. Now, some people, 
they don't plan to use a shower we in We know their- a lot of people that never even use their shower because... If you don't know, a lot of the state parks and even national parks. RV parks. RV parks, they have showers, Mm -hmm. you know. A good majority of them do. So, you know, you can take your stuff and use their showers. And even during the COVID times here, most of those parks and most RV resorts, the shower rooms were open. So, so you don't have to use your shower, but I got to tell you, I want to use my shower. I mean, that's one reason why we bought an RV to begin with. We wanted to take our shower with us. You know, but one thing that's been interesting that we've noticed over the years, or I've noticed over the years, is sometimes the showers, you really have to step up pretty significantly getting in and out of them. So if you've got a problem, maybe with your knees or your hips, stepping up and down onto different levels of flooring, you need to pay attention to that. And you need to make sure that maybe there's a grab handle appropriately placed, you know, for getting in and out of the shower because you don't want any accidents that would ruin your, your vacation. Right. And and another one, too, to look at is windows. Look at windows on it. You know, when you go camping, I we like windows on the camping side. You know, a lot of times they'll have all the windows on the non-camping side. Well, I like windows on the camping side, so you can look at and see your own campsite and see what's in your campsite and and bring nature into you. Do the windows open? How do they open? You know, that's so windows to me is extremely important, too, because some of these campers, if you look at them, they hardly have any windows. I don't want to feel like I'm in a tin can myself. Well, and that's a great point. Um, so that's a, yeah, that's definitely something to consider. Do you want to, you know, are all your windows looking at your own sewer connection? That's not so lovely. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So what about, uh, food storage? You know, food storage can be a big thing because depending on if you, if you like to cook or if you don't like to cook, Hey, some folks just want to eat at restaurants. This is their vacation. But if you like to cook You need to make sure the refrigerator is big enough to hold the appropriate types of food that you like to carry or the freezer space or the pantry. Well, yeah, and and how are you going to cook? Are you going to use pots and pans? Are you going to go with cast iron? Like we like to cook with cast iron a lot of times outside, but am I going to be able to have room in the outside storage bin to carry the cast iron? You know, those are kind of things that you definitely need to think about for sure are the tvs in the right space are you going to be able to see without craning your neck and getting a crick that's a big one for me because i don't want to be looking to the side to look at the tv i want to be able to look straight at the tv not that we watch the tv a lot when we're out in the state parks but it's something you need to consider and finally what does it look like with the slides in is it easy to pack unpack get to what you need to get to That's true. It's an important piece. So we hope these have been helpful. Uh, Would love for you to have great luck with your RV search. Don't let it stress you out. Have fun with it. There's no right answer. It's just what's right for you. We look forward to seeing you out there. Thanks for joining us, y'all. 
For more on what we talked about this week and to find other episodes, visit the podcast page of rvtexasyall.com. Subscribe to the RV Texas Y'all podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to join us on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RV Texas Y'all. Until next time, safe travels. And happy camping. Bye. Thank you.